Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Well, hello, Kristen. Well, hello, Caroline. Uh, so today we're talking about female freaks, as in sideshows, circuses, and stripteases. Hey, there's the title. Hey, hey. And for those astute listeners out there who listen to our episode on mermaids, you might remember P.T. Barnum coming up in that conversation for his great uh, Fiji mermaid hoax. Yeah. And not surprisingly, P.T. Barnum is a central figure in this freak show podcast because he is sort of the father of freak shows in the United States. Yeah, he sort of centralized them, mm-hmm. institutionalized them, if you will. Yes, and he opened up the American Museum in New York, which was a dime museum, and he basically had all of these sort of uh, freak show attractions that people could come and check out. And ironically, he also organized the first real beauty contest in the United States in 1854. So he's, you know, selling freakery, beauty. Yeah, it's all kind of what, the same thing. You name it, P.T. Barnum's going to do it. Mm-hmm. All of these freak shows are really flourishing early on, before mm-hmm. television. Yes. Um, back in the Victorian era, uh, usually between 1850 and about 1920, um, basically as the market for leisure activities increased and people had money to burn, mm-hmm. you know, they, they had the weekend to go spend their money and were looking for things to do. And they also had a morbid curiosity. <laughs> that helps. There was a difference between made freaks, and that would be people who had a ton of tattoos, for instance, and then there were born freaks, which would include um, dwarfs or conjoined twins, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and yeah, during the Victorian era, people were just had this strange fascination with going and seeing like a dwarf such as Tom Thumb, which was one of the most famous freaks that P.T. Barnum made into this kind of phenomenon. Uh, And at the same time, we also have, this is in 1832, the coining of teratology, which is the science of monsters and abnormality in plants and animals. So it seems like, I don't know what was going on in the Victorian era that was really fueling this. Maybe it was... It's, well, they didn't have reality TV yet. Yeah, there you go. There were no real housewives of Beverly Hills. To watch the plastic surgery. Exactly. Those kind of physical changes occur. Um, But one really interesting piece of research that we found was the intersection between the development of free shows and strip teases. Right. Yeah. Uh, In 1893 at the Chicago World Columbian Exposition... Uh, cooch dancing was introduced, oh and it's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> um, it was basically belly dancing, mm-hmm. and it became kind of a strip tease for purely male audiences. Eventually, they just did not let women or children in, which is probably appropriate, especially since this is the Victorian era. Right. Um, but yeah, according to Rebecca Reed of the University of Wisconsin, this cooch dancing became part of the circus sideshow tent around the turn of the century. And it was part of the final blow-off, which is a term that basically means the final show of mm-hmm. the sideshow tent. Mm-hmm. And so it usually did involve naked or half-naked women dancing around um, after the freaks were 
separated on stage. Yeah, so you go to the freak show, and then you can stick around for a cooch dance. <laughs> exactly, but... But... Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, naked ladies were not the only part of the sideshow. Right, and so while you might not associate uh, strip teases with freak shows, Rebecca Reed points out that, in fact... They were both, the, the women doing the strip teases and the women in freak shows and the men, of course, too, were considered freaks because they were a total paradox, especially if you think about the, the women doing strip teases during the Victorian era. Right. Belly dancing, we might not think anything of that. You know, you might go to some restaurant and there would be belly dancers. Yeah. And you're not horrified. You would <laughs> take your children. Right. But back then it was considered extremely exotic because, yeah. I mean, think about the clothing they wore in the Victorian era. Everything was covered. Oh, my mm. gosh, did I just see an ankle? So the fact that these women were dancing around in these little skimpy outfits, it was considered pretty uh, risky, pretty kind of... Titillating. Yeah, absolutely. But the nude or totally nude women did not make up the majority of female sideshow acts because the focus of the women in freak shows was really on um, their bodies, but also their talents that they had in spite of, say, a disability. Right. Like, look at the amputees, people who maybe were either had limbs amputated or were born without certain limbs. People thought it was really interesting to watch them do basic things. Right. Like there's a picture of Anne Leek Thompson, who I think is from Georgia. Um, she was called the Armless Wonder. And there was a picture of her that I saw where she's, you know, dressed like a normal individual. She happens to be sitting on a table, but who hasn't? <laughs> um, and there's a little boy and uh, a man next to her. I think it's her family. And she happens to be holding a pair of scissors between her toes. Just like, hey. I'm cutting things with my toes. It's normal. And audiences were like, oh, my God. Yeah, because they would often try to pair something very normal mm -hmm. with the so-called freak to make it that much more obvious that this is very different than what you've normally seen. A woman sitting on a table cutting things with her toes. People hadn't really seen that. Right. And those kind of the people with those kind of talents, for instance, um, the Hilton sisters were uh, conjoined twins. They were born in England in 1908. Yeah. Not not the current Hilton. Yes. Sisters. This is not Paris and Nikki. Um, and their mother sold them to this woman named Mary Hilton and basically sold them into Freak show slavery. Yeah, the uh, Mary Hilton was actually their mother's boss, and she took one look at them and figured she could make a dime. Yeah, or several off of their so-called talents, um, basically making them perform. Yeah, they played. They would play music, and they started touring at the age of three. And I also read that at the height of their career, they were earning five thousand dollars a week. So you know, while it is a tragic story, you know, of these girls being sold into, into the freak show, if you had a disability at that time, you know, some kind of, um, you know, very ostracizing sort of, uh, handicap, then freak shows were actually one of the only ways that they could make a living, you know, especially if they grew up in poverty. Right. Yeah. And that, uh, that leads me to bring up Minnie and Christina, Mm -hmm. who were conjoined twins born into slavery. And they actually used the money they made in the sideshows to gain their freedom after the Civil War. And they went on to perform in their own shows. And, of course, uh, we have obese women like Titana the Fat Girl. Apparently, obese people, men and women, were really popular in freak shows yeah. back then. And let us not forget Jolly Irene, 
who um, has kind of a sad story. Her endocrine system got thrown all out of whack after she had a baby, and she ballooned from 120 to 689 pounds to the point where they could not even fit her in the railroad cars anymore going from show to show. And imagine if a case like that came up today. Jolly Irene would probably be able to go to the doctor and somehow get that. Yeah, she would just be put on medicine, control. told to exercise, eat right, and she'd probably be a normal-looking person. Right, but I mean, th- those kind of resources were not available in the Victorian era. And you also, uh, since they had the obese women, of course, there were also the skinny women and the skeleton men, as they would call them. Uh, there's Eliza Jenkins, the skeleton girl, and of course, bearded ladies. Yep. Leonine, the lion-faced lady, and Annie Jones, who was a popular bearded lady at the I time. I looked at a picture of Annie Jones for a while, and I, I, it, how can that be real? Is that real? Is that something you can treat? Do women get yeah. hair on their face so much that they can grow a beard? I mean, that's sure. crazy. There are, I mean, we, we have not, we've talked, we've talked about facial hair some before, but yeah, I mean, those, hmm. those kind of, those kind of conditions can happen. She was a very handsome woman. <laughs> Um, and then, like I mentioned, uh, dwarves earlier, there was Anita, the living doll, mm-hmm. who was sort of the counterpart to Tom, Tom Thumb. She was very popular. And tattooed ladies could make quite a buck on their ink. Yeah, and these are people who were not born freaks. These yeah. are people who were born probably relatively normal and just decided to have their entire bodies covered with tattoos. Um, a thoroughly tattooed lady in a large circus could earn a hundred to two hundred dollars a week, which nowadays would be, you know, between twenty five hundred and about fifty one hundred dollars, which is well, that's not too shabby. That's really not that bad. Yeah, I don't uh, really want to tattoo my whole body, but you know, maybe. Well, didn't you find the story of a woman who was tattooed in like all sorts of religious sayings from like head to toe? Yeah, um, she was born Anna Mae Burlington. Um, and the story's kind of sketchy as to whether she ran off with a tattoo artist or if she met this man and then married him. But basically, she got her husband to tattoo her entire body with both religious Im- imagery and I think there was George Washington was thrown in. <laughs> um, but she performed as Artoria the Tattooed Girl. And okay, let me tell you, she was born in 1893. Mm-hmm. She retired in 1981. Whoa. So. She kept busy. That is a that is a lifetime of work. But I guess you know you've got to be committed yeah. to your job if you're willing to get be tattooed from from head to toe. And then there was uh, a famous hoax because P.T. Barnum loved his hoaxes. Mm. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, probably the most famous would have been Harry Mary from Borneo, which was a monkey. Yeah, that's just so Wait, so uh, offensive. Uh, do you not? Look at that and know that that's a monkey. This was the Victorian era. They also, you know, he was able to get away with the Fiji mermaid. That's true. I mean, there was, it was kooky times back then, Caroline. They didn't have the Google. <laughs> the Google. They could I just they Google didn't. things, get on their the smartphones. Um, uh, I also thought it was interesting how in 1851, we have the development of the set plate technique that allowed especially popular freaks to basically make their own kind of like baseball cards, sort of collectible uh, handbills with their portrait, these very carefully posed portraits and their life story on the back. One that I liked, and I know this was not a female sideshow act, but Jojo, the dog face boy, mm-hmm. he has one. Mm-hmm. And he looks just like Chewbacca. <sighs> I love it. I, I kind of want it. See, and people will, people would go around and they would actually collect these cards. They would sometimes hang them 
uh, and display them in their house. Yeah. Uh, this was a very, you know, at its height, you know, from 1850 to 1920, a pretty lucrative racket they had going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, well, I don't know if it's fortunately. That's the thing. Like, it was the dying off of the freak shows um, not necessarily a bad thing? Well, I guess it depended on who you were. If you found another place to go, a lot of freaks retired to, what was it, Gibson, Florida? It is Gibsonton, Florida. Gibsonton, Florida. I mean, that would be an interesting place to go to the grocery store. Yeah, they had special um, permits, and they might still have them. I mean, it's a very small town in Florida, but they would have things like special permits for elephants mm. and to, to allow people to be able elephant to like, parking. keep their yeah, elephants in their yard and things like that. Well, I know it didn't work out as well for the Hilton sisters going back to those conjoined twins Mm -hmm. because I read about how they, um, once the sideshow acts started losing popularity and people were like, Oh, maybe we shouldn't laugh at people with problems. (laughs) Um, they actually ended up working in a grocery store as bag girls, I guess at registers next to each other. Um, and then actually they were found dead in their home. Oh my so god. They, they did not have a good story. ending to their story. Well, I mean, the, the freak shows, whenever we hear about freak shows, like it's typically a, a sad kind of thing because a lot of these people would not be doing it if they weren't down their luck and had to entertain, you know, kind of show off their disability, which was considered this monstrosity at the time if they didn't have to. And they were gradually like pushed out of the larger city centers that started to get things like movie theaters where people could go and hang out and watch a movie instead of going to a freak show or a circus. And so they would were pushed out to like smaller and smaller towns until they just died out in the forties, especially with um, the rise of improvements in medicine mm-hmm. where they could actually get certain conditions treated like the endocrine system right. issue, like we were talking about. Um, but the reason why I thought it would be interesting to talk about, you know, if, female freaks in the circus and in sideshows on the podcast is that, uh, first of all, they bled into like the ending of the freak shows overlapped with the beginning and the rise of beauty pageants. Right. Just more parading people around. Yeah. It's like two sides of the same coin. And scholars who focus on something called body criticism have done a lot of research on, uh, beauty pageants and on freak shows and Susan Stewart, who wrote a book about, um, about this refers to this kind of people on display, sort of like the extremes, like extreme beauty and freakery as the pornography of distance. Right. Because we have, when we're in the audience and we're looking at either, you know, a very obese woman on stage or some sort of beauty queen, Mm -hmm. we're at a distance. We have someone like an MC Saying, okay, here's this woman. Here's what she's doing. Look at her. Let me explain what she's doing. You're not interacting with the person on stage. So you don't really have to worry about their feelings. Right. And it reminds me of this concept of the male gaze that we talk about a lot in sort of feminist discourse of this focus of like men looking at women. But this is like just the public looking at other people. And um, I thought this was an interesting quote by... Robert Bogdan in his book, The Freak Show, he says, how we view people who are different has less to do with what they are physiologically than who we are culturally, which makes total sense because, um, as our kind of collective morals changed and medicine was able to take off and our, I guess, our leisure interests changed, freak shows became more and more, um, sort of 
what would be the word? Uh, not cool to go to. <laughs> yeah, not as socially acceptable. Yes. It became more socially acceptable to look at a half naked woman, you know, with a spray tan walking around the stage in bathing suit. Right. I was kind of thinking about that when I was reading about, um, the, the history of freakery and how, you know, we now see these, uh, these slideshows of like celebrities, awful plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, it was this, is this the new sort of reality freak show? Yeah, look at Octomom. Yeah. I mean, she's definitely got to be part of a modern day freak show, right? I, I mean, I think that that argument can definitely be made because it's still our fascination with celebrity culture and with people like, uh, Nadia Suleiman. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> AKA Octomom. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> know that name. Um, I think reflects a lot about where we are as a culture, kind of like Robert Bogdan notes. Yeah, we're still voyeurs, but we're just looking at different things now. We're not necessarily looking at people with disabilities and disadvantages Mm -hmm. and laughing and pointing, but we're still looking at people from a safe distance, like Mm -hmm. celebrities, where we can point and, you know, look at Charlie Sheen and we can be like, oh, God, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. But he's probably actually having a hard time. I don't know. (laughs) Well, and by pointing out those kind of differences from that distance, it further establishes these um, sort of societal norms of like, well, this is what is and is not normal, which, you know, we get into ideas about normativity and whether or not that's a healthy thing. Mm-hmm. A lot. And the freak shows, I think, are a, a, an extreme example of how that happens. But one thing I wanted to say, though, um, from a disability studies perspective, this came up a few times in some of the articles we ran across, was that um, freaks are can also be perceived as, quote, battlers against adversity and oppression who have refused to surrender themselves to shame and ostracism. I mean, they're getting up on stage and they're saying, you know what, like, I, I know I have this issue, but... I'm kind of using you for money. Right. To come look at me. Yeah, I know. So if anyone would like a visual companion to this episode, Todd Browning made a 1932 film called Freaks, which features a lot of... Yeah, it has the Hilton sisters in it. Yeah, it features a lot of the freaks that we we mentioned. I have yet to see it. Didn't he? I think he went on to make Dracula. He did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Bella Lugosi. Um, so yeah, I think we may, I wish we could somehow host a sminty screening of freaks. That would be interesting to go back and watch. So I hope that, I hope that this was an enjoyable little slice of history. I don't feel like we talk about like free shows comes up very often. No, not usually, but Coney Island does have its own little like freak show sidewalk area with, uh, like human blockheads and, fire eaters and, and things like that. So it still exists. Yeah, just... people still do it like Lizard Man. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Hey, you know. Hey. Yeah, well, and he's doing it to himself. He is not yeah. a born freak. He's, he's just like the tattooed ladies of, of yesteryear. He's he's a maid freak. So anyway, just interesting. Um, also, remember, remember that, that history with the strip teases, too, because I wonder if we didn't have freak shows. Would the strip teases have evolved? P.T. Barnum would have worked it into a beauty contest somehow. Gosh, he would have. That P.T. Barnum. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> if you would like to send us an email, if you have any freak show history to share with us, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And why don't we read a couple of emails now? All right, Kristen. Well, Helen writes... 
she says that I had just finished listening to the bicycling podcast when you had mentioned a lack of female role models in professional cycling. Canadian Olympian Clara Hughes, cycling and speed skating, immediately came to mind. She won her first Olympic medals in cycling in Atlanta. Woo! That's her woo. Woo! Yeah, in 1996 and in speed skating in Salt Lake City in 2002. Clara Hughes is one of the very few, if not only, athletes in the world to hold multiple medals from both the Winter and Summer Games, male athletes included. In 2010, Clara was the Canadian flag bearer at the Vancouver Winter Olympic Games and was a world record holder in the 10,000-meter track for a period of time. And she just thought we would like to know more about Clara and her impressive list of accomplishments. Well, thank you for sending that bicycling role model. Um, I've got an email here from Katie, and this is in response to our episode on astronauts. Now, I'm going to say that I w- was not able to entirely fact check this, but she writes, I just thought you'd be interested in the fact that Star Trek changed the astronaut community forever, and it was a big deal that there was a black woman playing an important role, and there were people of all ethnicities and even an alien on the show. Off the set, they actually reached out and not only talked NASA into allowing more than just white guys into the astronaut program, they also helped NASA rally up more astronauts. Uh, there's a lot more information on this at StarTrek.com, but I thought you guys would like to know that tidbit. So I went online to try to uh, to fact check this, and while I couldn't, I, I don't know that they actually petitioned NASA to get um, to improve their diversity in the astronaut program. I did find this choice quote from Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, who was adamant about having a diverse cast on Star Trek. And he said, I think this was in 1976, speaking to Playboy, maybe? He said, I refuse to have an all-lily-white Anglo-Saxon crew. And and hence he had like one of the most diverse casts on TV at the time with, uh, with Star Trek. So thank you, Katie. For sending that in. And of course, if you have thoughts to send our way, again, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or if you'd prefer to get on Facebook, you can do that as well. We're over there. Send us a, a comment, like us, and you can follow us on Twitter as well. We are at momstuffpodcast. And finally, during the week, you can read our blog, Stuff Mom Never Told You, at howstuffworks.com. <laughs> Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?